Okay, <laughs> flipping A. Has uh, had a couple wonderful phone calls. My daughter has headed south. I guess she's going to hook up with her brother and spend some time with her brother down there. Just some things she's doing. Um, I was supposed to have a friend come over. And she was going to help clean the house because I'm still sorting through stuff and that. But I put that on hold because Claire's not here. And and I have other plans myself. So I divorced myself from that, um, you know, the reality of cleaning the house, the thing, something we were going to do. Anyways, had a wonderful conversation again this morning with a friend, thinking about things. That's just me. Uh Thinking about a lot of things. We talked about a lot of things. Really deep stuff. I love the deep things. I love the pushing aside the reeds as you walk through a field or something. When the grass is really high or there's reeds like near a pond. And you push them aside and now you can see the pond. You can only faintly see the pond looking through the reeds. But when you push the reeds open, when you push them apart, you can actually see the pond. That's what this person and I did, this friend of mine and I, was what we were doing in our conversation. I was trying, trying not to yawn. No, I was trying to help them see reality and help them see things as they really are, as they were, as they are, and as they will be. And in the conversation, part of what I touched on, and I'm going to talk about it now, is personal responsibility and accountability. Um, One of the greatest declarations in the scriptures is the one where, I mean, this is because there was a fallacy. Many religions, Christian religions, think that that we are tainted by Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's transgression. So in the Christian world, there's there's a general feeling or assumption or belief that because Adam and Eve transgressed the law, now those it doesn't say in the scriptures they sinned, it says they transgressed the law, they broke the law. Um, there's a general feeling and belief in in Christendom by many Christian churches or religions that that tainted us that were we carry. Well, speaking as uh, I used to be a Catholic, they used to speak of original sin. But the scriptures do not call what Adam and Eve did a sin. They call it a transgression, a transgression. And when you read the text, you realize that in the Garden of Eden, it says that Adam and Eve were innocent. They were like little children, not knowing good from evil. So when Satan tempted Eve, well, first Satan tempted Adam and Adam wouldn't do it. He goes to Eve and he beguiles, as the scriptures say, beguiles Eve and Eve partakes of the fruit. Of course, if you read what he says to her, if a person was like a child, it would sound rational, believable. So she partakes, (sighs) takes the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, takes it to Adam and Adam partakes and they both now become subject to the fallen state that we live in. It began that state. Well, many Christian churches or religions believe 
that we're born into sin because we have the original sin of Adam and Eve, but that's false. One of the greatest declarations of the scriptures is that men will be held, it says this clearly in the New Testament, especially, that men will be held accountable for their own sins. So one, Adam and Eve didn't sin, they transgressed, so there was no sin to begin with. We're born innocent in this world. Everybody acknowledges the innocence of children. So it's illogical that in one hand you accept and acknowledge the innocence of children to be able to say that they're born in the sin that they're innocent. It doesn't make sense. But people somehow convince themselves that that is true. Now, personal responsibility and accountability go hand in hand. We're responsible for ourselves, and we will account for ourselves. Now, we will account also for the influence or impact we had on other people by our choices, but we will not be held accountable for their decisions in response to our influence. People, those are muddy waters for a lot of people. Um, Sometimes um, people will say, well, I did this. And if I wouldn't have done that, then they wouldn't have done what they did. Well, there's no evidence for that, none whatsoever. Um, like, like maybe a girl will say, you know, or maybe say a married woman will say, yeah, no, my husband wouldn't have done this if I wouldn't have done that. Or a business partner says, well, if I was paying him more money, he wouldn't have been dishonest. He wouldn't have stolen from the company. There's no evidence to that. And what is paying him enough money? At what point are you paying him a sufficient amount of money that keeps him from stealing? You're not paying him what you consider enough money has no basis for his choosing to be dishonest. Now, you can say I could have paid him more money, and maybe you could have paid him more money if you wanted to, but you didn't do it, did you? But you cannot take responsibility for his stealing simply because you believe you should have paid more money. He will be held accountable for his stealing because he chose to steal. You will be held accountable if indeed you cheated him out of wages or something. But if you say to someone, "Um, I'm going to pay you $5. You want to work for me? It's $5 an hour. If the person says to you, okay, I accept the terms. I'll come to work for $5 an hour. So they come to work for you, and then they feel like they're not making making enough money, that you should have paid them more. Even though you didn't offer them more, and they accepted what you offered, they convinced themselves that somehow you cheated them, so they start stealing from you. You're not responsible for their stealing. They are. You will not be held accountable for their stealing. And I seriously doubt if you would be held accountable for offering them $5 an hour because you made an offer and they accepted it of their free will. They could have said $5 an hour is not enough. I have to have at least 10. To which you could have said, well, I really need them. Okay, I'll pay you 10. Now, if you agreed to pay them 10 and you didn't pay them 10, you cheated them out of money. Yes, you're you're held accountable for you're cheating them out of money. But even if you cheat them out of money, if they decide to steal from the company, 
you're not held accountable for their stealing. I don't know why people can't get this. But that is, uh, so in this talk, this podcast about personal responsibility and um, accountability, I'm hoping to make it clear to you that personal responsibility and accountability go hand in hand to each person. But the, my personal responsibility does not make me accountable for your personal responsibility to yourself or for your choices in your life, the decisions that you make. I'm not responsible. I'm not, I will not be held accountable for that. And it is not my responsibility. Um, because a lot of times you hear people say, or people will say to me, then what is my responsibility, George, to other people? What's my responsibility to my wife or to my husband or my children? And I'll say, well, I think those responsibilities are pretty much well-known, documented, and understandable. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm no, I'm, no, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that and stuff like that. And I'll say, your responsibilities to them go, well, okay, a, man, a man's responsibility to his wife. He's supposed to be a loyal husband. He's supposed to be a provider. He's supposed to be a protector. He's supposed to treat her nicely. He's supposed to do everything he can to help her to be happy in the marital situation. I think those are the things that people pretty much understand. But he's not going to be held accountable for for her unhappiness. He's not. He's going to be held accountable for his conduct in the marriage. But if she's unhappy about something, he's not going to be held accountable for her unhappiness. He'll be accountable for whatever conduct of his that may have caused her to be unhappy. But he will not be for her unhappiness. Um, just like in friendships, there's a, in, in, no, in a marriage too, with all these relationships, there's a quid pro quo. If you expect something from the other person, it should be something that you honor to them. So if you expect them to be honest with you, you need to be honest with them. If you expect kindness from them, you should be kind to them. Those are the quid pro quos of relationships. Relationships do not work very well when our expectations of others do not match our expectations of ourselves. So we certainly should not be expecting somebody to be honest with us when we're not honest with them. And when we expect it and don't get it, we shouldn't be disappointed. Because a lot of times in relationships, even when they start out where one person is much more than the other person, uh, in other words, one person is not very honest, but the other person is. The one person is not very kind, but the other person is. That incompatibility will only last so long. And the person who's very kind will distance from the person who's not, be less involved with them. Or, or find ways to cope with it. So like in a marriage, a wife will find ways to cope with her angry husband, her fault-finding husband. Um, or a husband will learn to cope with his nagging wife who never seems to be happy about anything no matter what he does. Um, it doesn't make it right that she's nagging the life out of him any more than it makes it right that he's mean-spirited to her. But those are individual things that a person will have to account for for themselves. Um, And that individual behavior 
though influenced by the other person, the other person will only be held accountable for the things they do, not for the way you responded. Uh, and that's a very important distinction to make because when you're trying to determine personal responsibility and accountability, these are facts that you have to keep in mind. Now, it may seem romantic that someone um, who has been cruel or mean-spirited or something um, in like in a movie or something, I hate movies that are like this, but, you know, in the end, the villain... <sighs> the villain yawns. No, in the in the end of a lot of movies, the villain is held responsible for everything bad that happened. Everything. That's fantasy. That's not how the real world works. That's not how eternity works. Because at the end of the movie, in the eternities, in reality that person will only be held accountable for the things that they chose to do, um, not the things other people chose to do. So the other things people did against, you know, the villain, they'll be held accountable for the things they did against the villain that were not right. And, and the right and wrong, even though they're very distinct terms, sometimes the application can be very difficult to determine who was really, you can look at it right now. You can look at the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, war. Some people are with the Ukraine, some people are with Russia, some people don't know who they're with. Now, the people who are with the Ukraine uh, uh, say that Russia you know, invaded a sovereign company, country and is killing people and blowing buildings up and all that. It looks very simple. It looks very easy to say the Ukrainians are the victims and Russia are the villains. Very easy. However, if you study history and you understand the area and, and many things and all the warnings, you may find yourself not being able to say Putin was justified in invading but you may find yourself saying you can understand why he did. I understand why he did. Of course, I studied Russian history from 1900 on. I'm very familiar with Russia and the Soviet Union. Well, it started out as Russia. Then it was the Soviet Union. Now it's Russia again. Um, I'm familiar with the 1989 collapse of the Soviet Union. So I'm aware of their history. And I know, for instance, in World War II, when the Russians were fighting on the sides of the Allies, the British, French, and the United States, the area of the Ukraine was working with the Nazis. And they had concentration camps there, and they killed a lot of people. There was genocide, primarily on Slavs and Jews. Russians are Slavic people. <laughs> and the Ukraine wasn't even the Ukraine until after World War I. So there's a lot of things if you're unaware of, um, you could become polarized to one side. But when you are aware of these things, you see things differently. Now, I don't think Putin had a right to invade the Ukraine. But I think, I believe and think that Putin had a right to protect Russia. He has a right to protect his borders. Like, we should be protecting our frickin' southern border. 
We're more interested in Ukraine's borders than we are our own freaking southern border. What does that tell you about this leadership, supposed leadership of this country? So Putin has a right to defend his borders. He has a right, based on history, to be concerned about Germany and its allies encroaching upon Russian territory. And because of the uh, geographical uh, nature of the east, the western border of Russia to the eastern border of Europe, um, it's, it's, it's perfect for invading a country. You can just fly right through the place and be into Russia like the Germans did um, in 1943, I think it was. I think it was 43 when the big Russia action really happened. He got a non-aggression. He signed a non-aggression pact with Russia, which Stalin wasn't stupid enough to believe. He knew Hitler was going to avoid it. Hitler, he knew Hitler would invade Russia at some point, so he wasn't fooled by it. Um, but the point is, is that when Russia was fighting the Germans, the Ukraine was fighting the, the Russians. So we we can say to keep it in historical perspective and accuracy. When the Soviet Union was fight, when the Soviet Union was fighting on behalf of the Allies, Britain, France, and the United States primarily, um, we had the ANZAC, you know, the New Zealand and Australian forces too. So uh, there's a lot more countries that were involved on the Allied side. Um, the point should be kept: Russians were fighting against Nazified Ukrainians. You know, in 1944 and five, that they were fighting against them, and because of the nature of the fear Russia has, because it's been invaded so many times by its neighbors, Hitler, uh, Napoleon. I mean, there's a lot of others, but those two in modern day history, you have Napoleon, you know, invading Russia, uh, waging war against Russia, and then you have the Germans waging war against Russia. So Russia is concerned about the integrity of its border, its security as a country. Um, and building up NATO, which really, that time, that ship has sailed. We don't really need NATO as an organization to deal with Russia. We would get much longer or further ahead with Russia if we were negotiating and working with Russia. So this anti-Russia, work against Russia, don't negotiate with Russia. Um, not When we take this anti-diplomatic approach to, the, to Russia, they have reasons to be concerned. Um, they do have reasons to um, be concerned about our trying to get Eastern Bloc countries, Belarus, Poland, uh, well, most recently, that's what the thing in uh, the Ukraine is about. One of the major things is our trying to enlist these countries as members of NATO. They're right on frickin' Russia's border. And Putin is not believing um, that everything is fine. There's no threat here. Putin is seeing that as an aggressive action against him. You're going to, you're, in other words, you're making NATO countries out of countries that sit right on our border. So now countries that sit right on our border 
will be a forward staging ground for NATO, for, for invasion. That's what they think. Their security is out the window because the United States is trying to recruit Eastern Bloc countries previously um, to be um, part of NATO and to, of course, he's thinking they're going to bring nuclear weapons too, and which would be intermediate-range nuclear weapons, which is a great threat to Russia. So all this movement and all these decisions <clears throat> in not listening to Russia in working with Russia on its concerns for the integrity of its of its borders and the protection of its people have caused Russia to preemptively move on the Ukraine. That's what, was, that's what that was all about. If I can't get you to agree not to be a part of NATO and honor our borders, then I will invade you and just take over the property. Because he knows the United States... Well, the world, if you want to be honest about it, Germany, all those countries, they aren't really going to do anything about the Ukraine. They're really not. We talk a lot. They say a lot. Sanctions, we're going to do this. We're going to freaking have Dorothy drop a house on Putin. They make all these threats, um, all these declarations, and then when, when it really comes down to it, they don't do anything. It's true. Putin knows he won't do anything. He has nuclear. Yeah. Always the threat of nuclear. I don't personally see him dropping bombs and stuff like that. I see him using tactical nuclear weapons. Small nuclear weapons put in the nose of missiles who destroy buildings, cities. You know, but I don't think he would use um, heavy nuclear. I think he would use uh, light nuclear and maybe more Utah neutron bomb so the buildings are left intact but the people are killed by the radiation and it's a very short-lived radiation which dissipates and then the property can be used after the people have died you clear them out and then the buildings are still standing and you can use the infrastructure whichever way he decides to go now the ukraine will not be held responsible responsible for putin's invasion but they will be held responsible for the conduct, um, their, the negotiations with the Russians, for instance, um, all the negative things like that will be divided. Few, you know, I mean, the Ukraine will be held accountable for some things, and Russia will be accountable for other things. We will be held accountable for some of our things. Um, some of the decisions that we made and the consequences of those decisions and that's the thing about personal accountability, uh, personal responsibility, sorry, and accountability is we, at the choice level, we have a tremendous amount of control in our life. But once we've made a choice and then from the choice went and did an action, that's out of our hands. Once you do the act, it's pretty much out of your hands. It really comes down to how is what you decided to do, to do right now? How is that going? And you have to answer these questions. How is that going to affect me into the future? At the choice level, you have a tremendous amount of control. Once you make a choice and then execute your choice, the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak. As John would say, the genie's out of the bottle. There can be unforeseen 
consequences to decisions we make that we have absolutely no control over. We cannot control the, the consequences or the circumstances for the decisions we make once we follow through. Like we say, I'm going to drive 100 miles an hour, and you get out there and you're on the highway driving 100 miles an hour and the wind's blowing, and yeah, it's so freaking cool. Then you hit a patch of uh, grease or something, water in the road, and because you're not a very good driver, you freaking spin out, crash your car, and destroy your freaking car, and lose the, you lose the use of both of your legs. Now, you had no idea you are going to have this horrific car accident. Um, you may not even been aware of the crashability of the vehicle you're in. Some crash well, some don't. Some vehicles are frick. You hit a mailbox and it's totaled. <clears throat> a person, I think, needs to remember the fact that the outcomes, the consequences, those types of things we can only forecast, but it doesn't mean that we're accurate. It just means that. And as far as personal responsibility goes, it doesn't matter if we don't take personal responsibility and admit something and own it. Um, we're going to be held accountable anyway. And it's going to affect us anyway. We just have to find a way to deal with it. Um, there, <clears throat> there are some things, like I said, at the choice level, we have tremendous control over. But once the choice is put into action, it's a crapshoot. We don't know if it's going to be good. We don't know if it's going to be wrong, sick, well, all these types of things. We have no idea what the outcome is going to be, which I think should encourage us to be more conscious of the choices we make and to be more deliberate in the things we decide we're going to do and to take personal responsibility for the choices and the things we've done I think that's a good way to go. I don't know what you people think, but I think that's a good way. I think it's a good beginning, if nothing else. If you're a person who is having to start from scratch, that is a very good way to help you get through the scratch. <laughs> you know, very good way for, to help you understand things you may have not seen before, or it's just, it's just good all the way around. It's like everything I hear. Oh, the government is. And it's like some friend of mine will say, hey, do you know that um, Congress passed a bill and it went to little Joey's desk and he signed it. And so from now on, this is this is the law. Um, and you're going, this is a law? You might not even heard about the thing. But the point is, it's put into place and you're being governed by a law that may not benefit you, may have severe consequences for you violating it. Um, and you have to make a decision. Am I going to honor this am I gonna, or am I going to be taken advantage of? This is something I cannot do anything with. All these things are very important because um, I hear this from people quite a bit. They will tell me about a friend or a spouse or whatever, um, somebody they work with or whatever. And I hear this quite a bit. They'll say, I've known this person for 18 years, 10 years, whatever the time frame is. They'll say, I've known this person all these years, and 
you know, we've been friends for years. And now, now they treat me with disrespect. They treat me like I'm, stu I'm stupid. And it's just amazing how they are. Um, and I'll say to them, but why? And they'll say, I don't know why. It was just, well, you might have had 18 or 10 very good years with a person. But because of who the person is, that just may be what happened. They made choices in their life. And the consequences of those choices are not limited to themselves. They're, they extend out to you, too. They affect you, um, sometimes in horrific ways. And there's very little you can do about it, no matter what you choose to do. Um, there's sometimes that kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that you really can't do anything about it. I was, I was just curious. Does anybody really think about on that level, think about these things that far out to try to anticipate um, so they can do something about it early in the game? Because uh, when I was talking to someone recently, they were telling me that all this time that they thought this person was being honest with them, and then they discovered it was all lies and blah, 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 blah. And basically, they said, well, what do you think I should do? Um, I said, I think you should determine whether it is uh, worthwhile to approach them or you say to yourself, <clears throat> this is me. This is what I'd be saying to myself. I look at the person and I say, okay, they weren't honest with me and such. Are they even capable of being honest? You know, is it worth saying something to them and trying to repair the damage and make the thing work? Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's a waste of time. It's better just to let it go, not even bring it up, just let it go. Other times, yes, it is good to say, um, and I saw this, this was a lesson to me. Well, it was Thomas Sowell that really turned me on to this. He helped me understand when I heard a talk about his, about how when you're dealing with people who are dealing with situations that are difficult for them and they're trying to, solve the situation, uh, solve the problem. A good approach with people is to convince them there is no such thing as solving the problem. It's just dealing with the problem. And that made more sense to me to deal with things than it was to expect that there was going to be a solution. And what Thomas Sowell does to address this is he says, if you're seeking solutions for things, that will not work because there is no perfect solution for anything. Um, he's speaking more from economics, but what he's trying to say is um, there are no perfect solutions. He uses the term trade-offs. There's only trade-offs. Um there's written, it's true, there's trade-offs in everything. And I'll give you one, one, well, it's an economic expression, the law of diminishing returns, <laughs> but it's true. And I'll give you a perfect example. If you go to Carl's Jr.'s, I think it's called, excuse me, I think it's called Hardee's in other states. You go there and you order their $6 burger or their original burger or whatever they call it. It has a variety of names. They change the names to protect the hamburger. Um, the first one, 
and I would challenge you to do this if you don't believe me. The first hamburger, you're hungry, you go buy the first hamburger. It is freaking heaven on earth. They are very good. They're very tasty. You go, you buy the hamburger. It's wonderful. You eat it, and you're very satisfied. Okay. Go back 10 minutes after you finish that one and buy another hamburger just like it and eat that one. And tell me your experience of eating the second hamburger. Then the third hamburger. Do, do this after you finish a hamburger. Maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, go back and buy another one and eat it. Take your time. There's no rush. And buy the third, fourth, or fifth hamburger. Tell me how you feel about the third, fourth, or fifth hamburger. Because the law of diminishing returns says that eventually what was first really good in the beginning is something you're not going to enjoy when you get too much of it. That there is only so much satisfaction that can be, can be obtained from something. So, for instance, if, you're, if, you, if your solution is to go to talk to somebody who you think has wronged you, um, or if your solution is to do a certain thing, there are going to be con unforeseen consequences. Well, there are going to be consequences you're going to anticipate. There will probably be consequences that you're not going to anticipate. And there's going to be a price you're going to have to pay for the things you want. You don't get something for nothing. There's always a price to pay. So what he suggests is that you do a calculated risk to determine what benefits you're going to get for the penalties you're going to have to pay for anything. So you're getting the greatest value, the greatest benefit from the least amount of a penalty in the things that you do, but never delude yourself into thinking that you're going to get everything you want the way you want it, when you want it in perfect, in a perfect way, because that does not happen, especially when you're dealing with other people. Tremendous trade-offs when you're dealing with other people. The reason I'm telling you this is because of the things that I was just thinking about. It's much easier to live your life and have satisfaction if you realize that there are some things you're going to have and some things you're not going to have your way, the way you want them, and some things you're going to absolutely have the way you don't want them. And with dealing with people or circumstances, you're going to have to determine what the benefit penalty is, what the risk is, and you're going to have to accept the fact that there is going to have to be a certain price to be paid to get the things that you want. That's it. Much either. Some people will never be honest with you. Some people will be pretty honest with you. Some people will be very honest, and some people will just be plain honest. Strat is, is a stratification of of people in honesty. Everything's like that. There are going to be some people who like you but not love you. There's going to be some people who like you and love you. There's going to be some people who love you but don't like you. There's going to be all these different combinations, things that you really have no control over because it's the other person. So your interaction with that person is going to have to be calculated. You're going to have to determine the value of it how much time you're going to spend with them, how close you're going to get to them, the things you're going to tell them and the things you're not going to tell them. This whole dance of life 
has to be based upon the belief or acceptance of the belief that there are trade-offs, no real solutions. It's a very, when you embrace the concept and live it, makes a lot of sense and it makes decision-making a lot easier because you'll put in the effort to determine, should I buy that new car? I want, an, <clears throat> I want a new car. So you look at the pros, the pros, and I'm going to end it with this. I buy a new car. I've got a warranty for three years or 36,000 miles. So I'm protected. Um, it's going to be dependable. It's going to be modern. So it has a lot of advantages in that sense. What's the disadvantages? Probably going to have a high monthly payment. Maybe a high monthly payment you really can't afford. It's going to have insurance costs associated with it. It's going to have normal wear and tear, tires, oil, gasoline. It's going to have all those associated um, penalties that you're going to have to pay. Whether it's an old car or new car, you can put gas or diesel in it. Or if it's electric, you got to charge it. Um, if it's old or new, you're probably going to get a flat tire and have to do something about that. You're going to have to do the oil changes, put the washer fluid in. Old or new, you're going to have to do those things. Benefit of the new, the warranty, and the less likelihood of, of breakdowns and repair. Benefits of the old, um, maybe it's a very dependable car, and you you pay less to get the car. And even though it's out of warranty, because of its dependability, that's not such a great liability. But the fact that it doesn't have the newest technology, maybe airbag protection or things like that. Either way, with a new car or the old car, there are benefits and there are penalties. And the risk of the two, you have to determine mathematically, emotionally, psychologically, logically, all those E's you got to put a plug in there. And then based on everything you know and what the penalty, I mean, what the benefits are against the penalties will help you make the right decision, the best decision for you in the sense of trade-offs. Okay, that's it. Goodbye.